0: The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. right, good morning, Uh, great to be with you all. Uh, My name is Eken, I'm one of the covenant partners here at GCC. Uh, I know we say this week after week, uh, but we do mean it. Uh, If you're visiting us, we are very glad to have you. Uh, We would love to take you for lunch after this, so there'll be uh, Kelly and Andrew, to uh, look out for them or they will invade your personal space and ask you to go for lunch. All right. Um, but before we get started, uh, very important, if you don't have a Bible, please put up your hand. Um, someone will give you a Bible uh, and like this is our gift for you. You can take it home. You can keep it. Uh, very good deal. Uh, you come GC, you get a free Bible. Uh, tell your friends, tell your family. Okay. Anyone? Uh, free free Bible. Don't have a Bible. Okay. Otherwise, uh, okay, we are in week two of our new series in Ephesians. We spent the last like two or three years finishing 50 chapters of Genesis, but now we're in the New Testament and we're in Ephesians. And our series is called uh, In Christ, called United Empowered. And last week, uh, Massimo actually kicked us off of the first two verses of Ephesians one, right? Uh, and that's basically Paul saying, hello, Ephesian Christians, I'm Paul, an apostle. And before I write you a whole bunch of stuff, you know, greetings from God and peace to you. That's basically Ephesians one. Uh, But this week, we are going from 0 to a 100, okay? Uh, Paul, uh, the passage I'm about to read, verses 3 to 14, uh, Paul actually wrote this whole thing as one entire long sentence, okay? If you think you write long karangan, long sentences, Paul has got you beat, okay? And somehow in this one sentence, uh, Paul has managed to include uh, a dozen or so not very simple concepts that we need to unpack. So we have got quite a lot of work to do all right so before i read the passage and pray let me say two things if you did see the sermon title beforehand uh you'll notice that it's called sons of god okay i just want to reassure you that today's sermons sermon is not only for males okay Uh, we're gonna see how even females can be sons that'll be interesting uh and secondly if you're not a christian uh you couldn't have picked a better week to come because today we're gonna get a look into the full heart, what is at the core of Christianity. And as we go along, I want you to think about what this passage might mean for you. All right, If you're not a Christian, do, do be thinking, do internalize it, process it. All right. So let me read the passage for us, and then we'll pray. We're in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. I'll give you all a moment to get there. All right, starting from verse 3. to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we come before uh, your word today, uh, and there's just so much in here. Um, There are lots of concepts, lots of phrases. Uh, We want to learn and know them well. We want to understand them so that we can know you better. Um, So help us, Lord. Um, Help us not to just uh, listen and learn as an intellectual exercise, But we want to love you better and understand more deeply how you've come to love us Um, we need your help Um, help us lord by your spirit spirit you convict our hearts all this we pray in your son's beautiful name amen on wednesday 27th of april nagenthran damalingam a malaysian man was executed in Singapore. More than 10 years ago, he'd been caught bringing more than 42 grams of pure heroin into Singapore. And he spent the last 10 years on death row awaiting execution. Arguing on the grounds that he had been coerced and that he had intellectual difficulties, he went through a lengthy process of appeals right up to the last days before his execution. Obviously, his appeals did not succeed. The death penalty sounds chilling, doesn't it? And I know most of us here have probably never seen the inside of a courtroom. And if you have, I hope it's only as like a witness and maybe not as a defendant. But I want you to imagine for a second. Imagine you're the one in the dock. That's where the accused stands. You're the one in the dock. You're the accused you've been arrested, police knock down your door, drag you out, and you've been charged with a terrible crime. And you know the most likely penalty is death. It's been a whole month, but finally the closing arguments have been made. The final points have been submitted. And as you sit waiting for the return of the judge, it hits you. There is nothing more you can do. There is nothing more you can say. What happens next is entirely out of your hands. Your life is fully dependent on the judge and just then the judge comes in, the charges are read once again, your family sits just behind you, you can feel your heart thumping, a bead of sweat or two trickle down your neck, the verdict is coming, the hammer rises. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the best news that you could possibly hear in that moment? What do you want to hear the judge say when the hammer drops? Well, obviously it's to hear the words, you're free, uncuff him, uncover, uncuff let him go, throw the doors open, they're free to walk. That's what you want to hear, right? But you see, before we even start looking at what Paul writes in these 11 verses, we've got to see why Paul even needs to write this passage. It's a beautiful passage, but why write it to the Ephesians at all? If he says, now you're saints, now you're saved, now you're blessed, and now you're in Christ, well, that begs the question, right? What were the Ephesians? What were we... Before that, well, the answer is, we weren't saints, we weren't saved, and we weren't blessed in Christ. We were simply waiting for judgment, waiting for the hammer to drop and pronounce us guilty. And yet, Paul doesn't begin his letter to the Ephesians with a lengthy 50-step process of sacrifice to appease God and get right with Him right? And Paul also doesn't list out more than 300 laws to keep with absolute perfection to gain God's blessing. Instead, as we heard last week in verse 2, he greets them, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 3 alone, Paul uses the language of blessing three times. Blessed be God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And it's almost like, Paul, wait a minute. Like, Haven't you missed a step? How did we get from there to here? How is it that the Ephesians could end up being called saints by Paul when they're no different from us? How did they get a verdict that left them called blessed? Well, the answer once again becomes clear when we look at the passage. right? Because in the span of these 11 verses, Paul uses the phrase, In Christ, 12 times in christ in him in the beloved that's a lot of in christ he's trying to tell us something because that's the how you get that verdict you are not pronounced guilty by being in christ so this verdict and this blessing is found in christ and today we're going to find out how we go from waiting for the hammer to drop in judgment to in christ being blessed beyond measure and called sons of God. And we're going to unpack what that phrase sons of God means. Okay. So firstly, uh, if you look at your Bibles in verses three to six, uh, we'll look at how we are chosen by God to be in Christ. Secondly, in verses seven to 12, we'll look at how we are redeemed by the son to being brought into Christ. And finally, in verses 13 to 14, we'll see how we are sealed by the spirit to be kept in Christ. So, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. Let's start with being chosen by the Father. Well, as we said, Paul mentions being blessed in Christ in verse 3. But then again, lots of people talk about being blessed, right? Not too long ago, it was quite the trend to say, hashtag blessed. Okay, and people would say it online and in conversation, I'm so hashtag blessed, so grateful. It's like, but grateful to who? Right? At best, it's a vague expression of gratitude. But this isn't the case for Paul. Paul is absolutely certain. He says, These are spiritual blessings. Paul recognizes that Christians are blessed in Christ by God through the Spirit. He's not in any doubt where these blessings come from and who we should be grateful to. And the blessings we find in Christ are in the heavenly places, right? These blessings aren't grounded in anything earthly that naturally fades or deteriorates. God is the giver of these blessings and God himself is the keeper of these blessings. Well, then the next question we ask is, well, what exactly are these spiritual blessings that we find in Christ? And that's exactly what Paul spends the rest of the passage explaining. He starts in verses 4 to 6. He, the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him as sons, according to his purpose, to the praise of his glory. So what does it mean to be chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world? Well, it means precisely that, right? Some people get very uncomfortable talking about the choosing of the father, or what Paul calls predestination in verse 5. But all it means is before he created the world, the father in eternity past decided that he would save out of many, some to bless and call his people. And if you think back to our series in Genesis, after the fall, you have Noah and his family called out before the flood. Then we get Abraham and Sarah chosen to receive the covenant promise of the seed, the promised son. And Abraham's descendants eventually become the nation of Israel, whom God calls his son out from among the nations. And the nation of Israel continues until one day Jesus comes and he calls out 12 apostles and they eventually form the foundation of the church. Then in Acts 2, Peter preaches the Pentecost sermon, and 3,000 people are saved from among those who are listening, and so it goes on. 2022, the people of God preach the gospel, and through the church, the Father calls sons home into his family. And so it is with us. We are Christians because God decided in eternity past that he would bring us to faith. In Him. But what does this choosing lead to? What are its implications? How has it worked out? What does it mean to be adopted into God's family as sons? Well, first, let's answer the big question, right? Let's be clear on why Paul uses the language of sonship. Paul's not using sons with the concept of biological maleness primarily in mind. And neither is Paul supporting the idea that sons are preferable over daughters. That's not what he's saying. Rather, Paul is using sons mainly to refer to the fact that during that period of history, all right, it was sons who would receive the inheritance of their fathers. So Paul here is using sons to refer to both men and women. It's not about gender. And when we put this all together in context, you see that this truth that Paul's laying out here is stunning. Because you see, we're all very familiar with the concept of justification, another big word. And all that means is, okay, going back to the courtroom for a second, justification is that moment when you are legally declared righteous before God. And that's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. But here, Paul gives us a picture that goes beyond the courtroom. He says, you're not just right before God the judge, you're brought into God's family, into relationship with God your Father. See, through adoption, we went from one moment being in sin and needing mercy to all at once, being perfect in his eyes, being called a child of God, and listen, having the right to every bit of the Father's love and every good thing he has to offer. Everything that the Father has is ours. You ever think about the fact that at the end of time, like you will literally have the whole world as a gift? Just for starters, right? Like literally every good thing in this world is ours in Christ at the end of time. I'd say that's quite a lot. And I can't think of anyone who summed up the wonder of adoption better than J.I. Packer. He says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. You were a traitor. You went against the king. But all at once, in Christ, you're forgiven, you're clothed in righteousness and you were brought into the family. Adoption. So how do we apply this? How do we apply being chosen by the father to be adopted as sons? Well, firstly, would you let the truth of predestination humble you? Let's get beyond the big word, right? Look at what it means and let it humble you because this means that before he even made the world, the father set his heart on you You are not predestined to be some spiritual elite above other people. You are in God's family. You believe only because he chose you and called you and drew you to himself. At what point does your effort appear in that equation? That's the point. It doesn't. You were just as blind as the next person. So may the the weight of that truth bear heavy on us and force us to bend low in humility, when we would tend to be proud. You are in God's family because He chose you. And secondly, in everything you do, would you do it to the praise of His glorious grace that Paul says in verse 5? You see, the ultimate goal of salvation is that God may be glorified. God is glorified first in His grace shown in pardoning sinners, you and me, but He is also glorified by the kind of lives that we live after being saved. And this can get a bit tricky for us because, you see, we can tend to think that glorifying God requires us to be some Christian version of a Marvel superhero, right? But that's not what this is. Glorifying God simply means that you do what you do with a different kind of force. You do what you do with delight. Working out from the grace you've already received So if you're an accountant, be a great accountant. If you're a vet, be an excellent vet. Treat your animals with excellence. If you're a mother, be a great mother. God's family members find that duty has become delight because they work not to get right before a judge, but they work to please their father. How you relate to a judge is very, very different from how you relate to a father. And you're working, we are working to please a father. And finally, would you be at rest? Not to be physically passive, but don't live your life fighting to stay in God's family. That's why Paul says in verses 4 to 5, in love he predestined, right? God's love for you didn't start after he saved you. He saved you because he loved you. He loved you before the world had even been created you are never hey listen you are never about to be disowned by the father never and yet sometimes it's easy to forget that right so let's let's give this a go uh, do you find it hard to acknowledge your weaknesses and sin to other people you get a bit uncomfortable when people start pointing stuff out that maybe you didn't do quite right Because that means you're really concerned about appearing righteous, but a son knows that what really matters are the eyes of the father. And Paul says, you know what? You're holy and blameless in his sight. Or how about, do you play the comparison game? Are you secure knowing that in God, you're already blessed? Are you quick to find flaws in a situation and in other people? preaching to myself here because I tend to be cynical, right? Because that can make us feel real good, right? It makes us feel like we have a moral one-up on other people. But rather, let's live out the assurance of our Father's love and approval. So, we're chosen by the Father to be adopted as sons, His sons in Christ. And that sonship means we are... We're, we are righteous, therefore we are sons, and all that the Father has is ours, we are blessed. Well, since we know now that we we're chosen by the Father being Christ, let's find out how we are brought into Christ. Now, I already alluded to it, but if you look at verse 7 onwards, okay, immediately we're confronted with redemption, blood, forgiveness. Now, redemption and forgiveness imply needing redemption from something and forgiveness for something that's been done. Well, what about blood? Do you realize that blood is never spilt without some form of violence, right? I'm not just talking about wars, right? If you go to the hospital and you need to take a blood test, you need to get a blood sample, the nurse needs to extract blood from your body. Your body experiences violence, though on a very small scale, right? to get that blood sample, the needle breaks the surface of your skin and your vein is pierced. Violence, but on a very small scale, right? But when we talk about blood in the Bible, we are talking about cost. The cost of getting that blood test done is a tiny prick in your skin. But what's being paid for here? Paul says in verse seven, our trespasses, our trespasses are living contrary to God's law. That's what sin is. God's law reflects who God is. So when we break his laws, his moral demands, we're actually saying, I've got the right to determine what I want to do. But here's the thing. When you disobey the law of a holy and perfect God, all that is left is sin. Sin. This is the starting point of Christianity. If you're here, and particularly if you're not a Christian, and you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, this is where you start. We need to first realize that we do stand accused, and rightly so. You do start in that courtroom, and you are waiting for judgment. And the Bible demands that we own up to our moral failure. You start by standing in front of God, the judge, holding up every sinful thought and saying, I thought that of my own accord. Holding up every sinful action, saying, I did that of my own accord. Holding up every sinful word, saying, I said that of my own accord. It is to take responsibility for our sin, knowing full well, that our trespasses warrant God's judgment. But there's redemption from sin. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Just a sentence like that. How? How is it that you own up for your sin, this tremendous sin falling afoul of the God of the universe who is holy and perfect, and yet we can say there's redemption from sin, and Paul can say grace and peace to you in Jesus Christ. How is that even possible? Because your blood isn't spilt for your sin. Jesus' blood was spilt for your sin. And you know what this means? God today freely offers His grace, goodwill, blessing, and mercy to you. It costs you absolutely nothing to be forgiven of your sin everything that you have ever done and everything that you will ever do, that payment was made by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You need to, all you need to do is repent, turn and say, I believe that. I want that. I believe. But maybe there's a bit of a question that's forming in your mind. And maybe even from Christians here as well. You say, wait a minute, isn't that just a bit outrageous? Even just the way you said it, Right? Maybe there's that bit in your heart that sort of went, but it sounds so free. It can't be that free. right? You're like dodgy salesman or something. Right? You got to be careful what you preach, man. Right? But listen, God's grace, goodwill, blessing, and mercy are free for us because it costs Jesus everything. We do not deserve one bit of mercy that we receive because Jesus did not deserve one bit of violence that he endured. God did not waive a discount code and lower the price for our sinning. Quite the opposite. He paid the price of our sin in full by the death of his son. The fact that grace is offered freely to us is precisely what proves that our sin is infinitely costly. Because Jesus didn't go to the cross and say, look, I'll pay 80%, you settle the other 20%, okay? He didn't say that. He paid the price for our trespasses in full in his death. And that's why the Father can look at you and without a shadow of a doubt say, adopted, mine. This grace is freely on offer today, but it was not cheap. Yet we aren't saved to be static. Right? Verse 9, Paul says that in saving us, God is revealing his will and his purpose. We already know from predestination that God had a plan before time. And here, as people are being saved in God's family, that plan is being worked out one person at a time. But it begs another question. What's the destination? What's the end goal? Well, verse 10, at the end of time, all things will be united in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. What happens in Christ? We said redemption. See, even creation needs redemption because even the world around us has been fractured. The effects of sin go beyond individual human hearts and lives to affect the material world around us. And in the, but in the same way, the effect of Jesus' sacrifice doesn't just offer sinners redemption, but reverses the effects of sin on the material world. Uh, We we don't have time to dive into all that today, but Paul does say in Romans 8.22 that creation is groaning, there's pain, it's waiting for the end of time for it to be made whole again, along with the revealing of the adopted sons of God. Now, remember what we said about us as sons having Inheritance of the Father. Well, Paul in verses 11 and 12 sort of summarizes some of what he said, but he brings in two new elements. He says inheritance in verse 11 and verse 12, those who were the first to hope in Christ. Now we just have to get through a bit more of this, it's quite a bit, all right? Let's deal with verse 12 first, because Paul says verse 11 is so that what's in verse 12, all right? So, verse 12, those who first hoped in Christ were the Jewish believers. all right? Paul in Romans 1.16 talks about how he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, and this is it, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. And what he means is, chronologically speaking, it was the Jews who first received the promises of the covenant, like we saw in Genesis, and heard the preaching of Jesus and the apostles, and then later through Paul himself and the other apostles, the gospel was preached to Gentile nations. All right, so that's really quick explaining verse twelve. Um, but let's put everything from verses seven to twelve together. What is our inheritance that's coming at the end of time? Revelation and seven, Revelation seven and twenty-one tells us two things, which I think summarizes it beautifully. Firstly. At the end of time, Revelation 7, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshipping Jesus as Lord. That means both Jews and Gentiles. Secondly, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Like Paul said, God will dwell with his people forever, and there will be no more tears and death, no more pain and suffering. The world will be made new. So the picture we get is that in Christ and only in Christ as sons, we are headed for the end of time where we will be with God forever, holy and blameless in his sight, inheriting a perfect recreated world, worshipping with people from every tribe and nation and culture. And that's only possible in Christ because he paid the price of our trespasses. Now we have had a lot of, of information in these two verses. So I'm not going to give like five application points, right? Let's keep the application really simple. Christian, who can you tell this amazing and beautiful story of redemption to? And by the way, one of the most practical implications of God's predestination is the knowledge that there are people that God intends to call. So you aren't going out never knowing if your witnessing is going to bear fruit, but you witness to your faith in Christ knowing that it is God who saves, and he does not fail to call those he intends to call. As one person put it really well, we are the mailmen. If you are sitting with us equipped uh, equip groups, we are the mailmen. We deliver the mail. What's written in the mail is God's word, and that's it. We are the mailman. But next, if you're not a Christian, I want to push you just a little bit today. Maybe you've been looking into Christianity for a while, or maybe this is the first time you're hearing this. Or maybe you're here and you're like, I've sort of grown up a Christian. I think I know what it means to be a Christian, but I haven't really given it much thought or maybe you say, I, "I used to go to church, right? I used to do church, I used to go there regularly, but you know recently I just sort of you know, I, I don't see why. If there is something about this that is starting to ring true for you, or something's just starting to click for you, you say, I, I can't I, I, I think that might be right. I still have doubts, but you know this is just something about it that seems to ring true, the one thing you cannot. Do today is you cannot leave here. You cannot leave this room and say, you know, well, maybe, but mm, shrug. Don't do that. The call today is for you to freely admit your sin, repent, and turn to Jesus. If you say, man, I have really screwed up in my life and I need nothing less than total redemption, that is precisely what is on offer. Today, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ and you can be redeemed from all your sin and be adopted as sons of God. I wanted to say this earlier, but I wanted to give you the the full picture of what you have coming as well, not just what you get now, but what you get in Christ at the end of time to the point where it doesn't matter what happens to you now. Look at what's coming and look what is on offer today. The offer is Free, and it is very good. If you want to chat about it, um, if you want to respond at the end, you can grab me or one of the elders who are are here and just have a chat about it. We'd be happy to talk, right? But don't leave this room and say, "Hmm, whatever, maybe." Look at what is on offer. But let's move to a close. We talked about how the Father chose us to be in Christ, how we're brought into Christ by the blood of his redemption, how we gain an inheritance in him as sons. Now let's talk about what it means to be sealed by the Spirit, verses 13 and 14. Now why is this important? This is important because you see, at the end of the day, while we've learned so much about the mechanics of how we're saved, what it means to be justified, what it means to be adopted by the Father, when it really comes down to it, the struggle we have is living out our sonship day to day. Because it's, it's, it's easier to learn intellectually that to be God's son is to be holy and blameless, but when you're confronted with the fact that you still sin and you act the opposite of holy and blameless, you know what happens? It's really easy to fall back into trying to get your act together to convince yourself that you're God's child. So when something goes wrong, you start doing all the right things and you say, ah, now I'm convinced that I'm God's son. Now I know. See, I'm actually holy and blameless. But actually the basis of our sonship is what Christ has done. So we need something else. Because left on our own, we get this the wrong way around. right? Well, Paul says in verses 13 and 14, it is the Holy Spirit who seals us. Now, what does it mean to be sealed by the Spirit? Seal here certainly isn't referring to the cute and chubby marine animal that you see on that geo, okay? And neither does it refer to how you would seal a container and close it. Rather, Paul is talking more about the kind of seals in the past uh, that people would melt onto letters to verify that the letter came from probably a very important person. Right, there'll be like a special insignia on the wax seal. You know, people won't dare to open it. Okay, like, we all watching our movies, all right? Like, yeah, so, so that identifies where the letter comes from. And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit is who identifies us as one of God's family. But how does the Spirit do this? Well, one way is what Paul says in Galatians 4.6. He says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba Father. The Spirit is God's grace to us to enable us to continually cry out to God as our Father over the course of our lives, because look at verse 14, right? The Spirit is the guarantee or the down payment until we acquire possession of our inheritance. The Spirit is going to keep helping us cry out to the Father till the day we reach home. This means your perseverance in faith is also God's grace. God chose you. The Father chose you before you were born. Guess what? Before you were born, you couldn't do anything, right? And you were dead in sin, right? You you, you had this price to pay and you couldn't pay it. And Jesus paid it for you in full. And all you need to say is, I believe. And then how you get to the end is by God's grace in the spirit. At what point, again, does your effort appear in that equation? To come to faith is stay in faith. That's the point, it doesn't. It is God's grace to you which results in you being a changed person. And that means that each time we fall and we fail, we fall into sin, the Spirit reminds us of our identity as adopted sons of God, holy and blameless in His sight. Abba, Father, we learn to cry. So, we come right back where we started. Remember the courtroom analogy we started off with? Every time we sin, we know that we've done something deserving of judgment. I mean, like, you don't need, like, like, someone steals, they're like, I wonder if this is right or not. Like, you, and every time you tell a lie, you never question, like, you know, I wonder if I should have told the truth. It's like, yeah, you know what's the right thing to do. And so it's not like you need someone to tell you, like, hey, you know, that's wrong, right? Like, you know when you sin. And so we know when we have done something Worthy of judgment, we know when we sin. But you know what? It always feels like standing up to be accused all over again. Right? You kind of have this, oh no, not again moment. Right? And so we hurry to clean up our act, right? And we we sort of try to atone for our sin by the pain of our effort, and again we get it the wrong way around. Because our effort isn't what redeemed us in the first place, it was God's grace in His Son. And that's what the Spirit brings brings home to us. Each time we sin and fail, the Spirit enables us to remember the Gospel. Each time when you feel like you're standing in that courtroom once again, waiting for judgment, waiting for the hammer to fall, the Spirit enables you to come to the foot of the cross on the hill of Calvary and look up to a bloodied man hanging on a cross, and the Spirit reminds you, you're free to walk because Jesus was confined to the cross. You're forgiven because Jesus was condemned. And you receive mercy because Jesus endured the violence of sin. You can be the Father's Son because the Eternal Son died in your place. That's how the Spirit keeps you. It reminds you of the gospel. And you see, the final backdrop of the Christian life is not the courtroom, but a home. Stop going back into the courtroom and standing up to be accused all over again. We have already been justified. Don't try to work yourself into God's favour. In Christ, you have already been redeemed. That doesn't mean we turn our backs on justification and forget but we do look back in gratitude and praise and worship because through our justification, we are redeemed and adopted as sons. So let me close with this quote from Packer once again. There is tremendous relief in knowing his love to me, there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can disillusion him about me. Let me summarize that. God is never ever going to have a moment where he says, oh my gosh, you mean he did that? Or she thinks like that? Now I better rethink this whole love and adoption thing. God knows every bit of you before you were born The father will never for a second regret sending his son to the cross in your place. There was no plan B. The cross of Christ was plan A from the start. You are never, the father is never going to regret sending his son in your place. And you know, in Malaysian law, there's a section on adoption uh, which specifically states that when a child has been legally adopted by parents. Listen, there can be no asterisk on the child's birth certificate. You know what an asterisk is? It's that little sign, that little symbol in the main body of a text, a book or an essay that refers you to like a footnote at the bottom of the page. And and the author usually puts some additional caveat or qualification or explanation or justification at the bottom of the page, explaining the, the claim that they made. And Malaysian law says, when a child is legally adopted, there is no asterisk. And I think that's a beautiful analogy of what happens when we are adopted in Christ as sons. There are no asterisks. Because of what Christ has done, you are fully and completely accepted by the Father with no additional caveat or condition. The Father looks at you and says, Adopt it, mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful, big truths about you, a big God. We don't want to leave here with our hearts unchanged. We want to know you better. And we thank you that we know how you saved us and how sweet it is that by your Son dying on the cross, The offer of grace is free, freely offered, and we can say yes, amen, and come into your arms and know you as our Father. Thank you for saving us and adopting us. We love you. Help us to live in light of how you have loved us and saved us. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.